It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, who is uh, has a better participation and attendance rate on Thursdays than I do these days. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Yeah, I was uh, I was ill last week for a couple of days, so I unfortunately missed things. But thank you, as always, for being here and being reliable. It's uh, always uh, great to be back together. That's uh, and good news that uh, you didn't turn out to have COVID. So that was uh, that was great. Absolutely. No, it was uh, it was a little scary for a little bit. I, I wanted to ask you about COVID and vaccination and whatnot because we've had some open line callers and I'm getting some emails and some text messages of people asking about the legality of workplaces requiring immunization as a condition of continued employment in absence of that immunization being confirmed. A person either being put on unpaid leave or perhaps some other uh, remedy being employed i always hear oh they'll get sued the employer's violating their rights it'll go to court i said on the show yesterday i said well the supreme court of canada and all nine justices are double vaccinated one is required to be immunized to be in the court as a physical space now i know that i i don't think you can actually you know argue that in a legal sense but as an ordinary person i would expect the customs and practices adopted by canada's courts to be if nothing else in accordance with canada's laws and regulations including of course the charter so i look at the court doing that and i assume that they would have checked that it would be legal or not legal before engaging in that activity what is the story with all that well first of all you're quite right in terms of through the special nature of courthouses in that a lot of people going there aren't there because they want to be there right they're there because they have been charged with an offense they just have to show up in court or you've been summoned for jury duty or you've been called as a witness none of it is voluntary you can't just say, hey, I choose to stay out of the uh, busy bar or something. Um, it's just not how it works. And so it's particularly important that the courthouses continue their effort to be particularly vigilant. Uh, and they have been doing a number of things, like having sheriffs screen everyone coming in to make sure they don't have symptoms or things of that sort, and mask wearing is required. Uh, but there was a very interesting announcement that just came out uh, signed by Uh, The Chief Justice of the B.C. Court of Appeal, the Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court, and the Chief Judge of the B.C. Provincial Court, essentially all of the courts together. And the announcement was that all of the judges and all of the other judicial officials in all of the courts in the province uh, have all received uh, their full vaccination for COVID-19. And so that's an interesting announcement to every judge in the province, uh, all levels of court, all of them. Uh, have been wow. uh, vaccinated, so you're not going to get infected by the person who's there hearing your case, uh-huh. uh, or at least a lower likelihood of that, of course. Nothing's uh-huh. perfect, but uh, we can all do what we can do. Yes. Uh, and as well, all the uh, judges uh, announced, the administrative judges announced that uh, as of November 22nd, and that's in keeping with the provincial requirement for regular provincial employees, that all judicial, all court staff, and all service providers that will have any access to the non-public areas in courthouses will all be required to have received their full series of COVID-19 vaccinations also by November 22nd. Uh, And so the court is imposed, not only have all of the judicial officials already been vaccinated, they are making that mandatory uh, for all of the people who would work in the courthouse. Uh, You know, that would be everything from, you'd have... uh, uh, judges, secretaries, or other service providers, or other people that would be working in the 
secure facilities uh, at courthouses, uh, all of them uh, will need to be vaccinated by November 22nd uh, in keeping with what has been required of the BC Public Service. Uh, And so that will mean as well things like court registry staff will all be vaccinated. So if you're going there to file something, the person you're dealing with is going to be vaccinated. Sheriffs will all be vaccinated, thank goodness. Yes. Uh, some of the sheriffs early on were uh, a number of them wound up getting uh, infected because they were, of course, in close quarters uh, dealing with people who are, for example, in custody uh, in the in the courthouse. Yes. Um, and so there were more than one outbreak uh, on Vancouver Island uh, where that affected sheriffs. Um, I should say as well, they've been putting in some pretty careful procedures at the uh, uh, jails, again, trying to continue to keep people safe there, because if there ever was an example of an involuntary place you might be taken in close quarters, it's jail. Yes. Um, and so I, I suppose a few things we can draw from this. Um, first of all, it seems to be if you're looking for some appeal to authority in terms of uh, vaccination, uh, all of the judges in the province, every one of them uh, has been double vaccinated uh, and they are imposing the same requirement on staff and areas they are directly responsible for that uh, the provincial government is imposing on uh, BC public uh, servants. And so it's a crystal clear, resounding message uh, from all of the levels of court uh, in British Columbia uh, about the importance of vaccination. Indeed. Thank you for that. What else is on our agenda for today? Well, uh, a related topic from court, and this has been an interesting one, is what do you do about prospective jurors in jury trials oh, and vaccination? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're now doing our best to try to get uh, serious jury trials running again. Uh, they put in plastic barriers. They've been using two courtrooms in some circumstances so that the jurors can deliberate and be a little spaced out. Um And so one of the issues that's arisen on more than one occasion with differing results at different times has been, should you require prospective jurors to be vaccinated? Uh, Because even though you might put in plastic barriers and try to separate people a little bit, uh, of course, this would be another example of having you be potentially required in doing your civic duty to serve on a jury, uh, put in reasonably close and long-term contact with 11 other strangers. Yes. Um, and so uh, there was a recent decision out of Vancouver. It was The fact pattern was it was a jury selection for a murder trial, which was expected to last 25 days in court, so an extended time period. And one of the judge's considerations was that The judge wanted to, in addition to keeping people safe in a general way, wanted to avoid the possibility of a mistrial partway through the process if there was a COVID-19 outbreak uh, amongst jurors or court uh, participants, right? You can imagine how that would completely derail the uh, serious trial. Yes. And so taking that into consideration, uh, the judge directed that uh, there be a requirement that all people who might serve on the jury receive two doses of vaccine. People would be uh, asked to assure, ensure that they be uh, had been vaccinated, and anyone who didn't confirm that or wasn't prepared to answer uh, would not be eligible to serve on the jury. So the judge wasn't ordering the 12 people to go down and get vaccinated if they weren't vaccinated, but it would Uh, put a requirement on people. They would ask prospective jurors if they had been vaccinated, and if they didn't confirm they were or wouldn't answer that question, they wouldn't be able to serve on at least that jury. They might wind up on maybe a case that was short or something of that sort. 
Um, and so that's an interesting thing. Not all cases of judges have come to the same conclusion. Yes. I think probably taking into account, you know, local rates or, you know, how long the case was going to be or uh, those kinds of things. But certainly in a case like this where it was a longer period of time, uh, the uh, judge concluded that in the current circumstance, that was an appropriate requirement. Very interesting, so, watching how the courts yeah. deal with this. It is it is interesting. And, it, you know, as I said, it's, uh, I think, quite appropriate they'd be putting in an extra layer of caution uh, because people just don't have a choice. You can't just say, sorry, I, you know, I've got a, a medical condition. I really don't want to be there. I'm particularly susceptible. It's you better show up or, you know, the police are going to come and arrest you and bring you to the courthouse. And so in that environment, right, I think we all have to be just a little extra uh, diligent to make sure you're, you know, we're not putting people at additional risk by the judicial officials or court clerk or sheriff or somebody, uh, you know, being more likely to infect somebody. So um, I think it's really good to see that uh, they're continuing to put all of these efforts into making sure people are safe when they go to the uh, courthouse. I find it as an ordinary person very reassuring that I can look to the courts and I can see that that reasoned judgment prevail with respect to vaccination. Because unfortunately, and maybe it's not so much the case here in Canada, but in some other jurisdictions in the world, the the topic of immunization has been presented as much more of a live, almost political, there is no true answer, both sides are right, both sides are wrong issue. And that simply is not the case, according to medical science. It reassures me to see the judiciary coming down on the side of medical science. I think that's right. And also the important thing to remember is that it's one of those things which isn't simply something that would impact on the person who makes a decision. Uh, you're having an impact on other people in the community. And I think that's really what's being recognized uh, here by the court and others, right? It's, it's not sort of a, it's not an announcement saying, you know, uh, hey, we're just happy to tell you we've all made ourselves safe up here at the courthouse. Really, the purpose of this is to tell people we're doing everything we can to make sure that you are going to be safe when you come here. I see. Uh, because by getting vaccinated, it reduces, of course, the risk that you're going to pass along the virus to others. And so that's really what the court's doing here. Very well. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. It sounds like a good spot for our first break. We'll be right back. It's Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Back to Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Before we move on to the next topic, Michael, I just I want to note that the inference I drew from looking at the court as a model as to whether or not all uh, private businesses had a right to impose a vaccination requirement as a condition of employment, I suppose the compulsory nature of attending court, which is what you've mentioned, would not necessarily hold for all private businesses. So I don't quite have an airtight argument in this. Is there a, a common understanding in the legal community with respect to the legality of vaccination requirements for employees at private businesses? Huh. It's pretty hard to get a common understanding in the legal community for anything other than Fair perhaps enough. the earth is round. But I suppose I would say you're going to be in pretty solid company if you were making it a requirement that employees be vaccinated when you see that the provincial government is requiring that of all of its employees and the courts are requiring it of all of the employees who are working at courthouses. So while there may be some distinguishing 
points to be made about those different entities, you are certainly going to be in pretty good company uh, if you were to uh, develop a similar policy, I think, uh, for a private business. Fair enough. Uh, Our next topic, you and I have talked about the importance of access to justice any number of times in the past, and I commend you and other members of the legal profession for doing everything possible to make the justice system more available to those who need it most. We've talked about the very sensitive nature of family law in the past. That means family law practitioners by extension, do not have easy jobs dealing with these matters that can have profound implications on the personal lives of people involved in litigation. I'm, what are we seeing here in terms of volunteering opportunities? Yeah, this was, I think, really good to see. I mean, the legal aid system in British Columbia, particularly as it related to family law, was really dramatically cut a number of years ago. Uh, and so people are often, I think, shocked when they realize that there just isn't the kind of help there they might need if they wind up in a serious family law dispute. And so people should be aware of, I wanted people to know about this. In BC, we have a uh, organization called Access Pro Bono that helps organize lawyers to do volunteer work for people uh, who can't afford to hire a lawyer. Uh, And they've just announced a new uh, program they have there that I think may be of interest to people who are going through uh, family law uh, challenges. Uh, And that program is a program that is uh, providing now um, free mediation services, which would be usually provided by like senior uh, family lawyers or even sometimes retired family lawyers. That would be a common profile. Mm -hmm. Um, And the services will be uh, available uh, without charge. Uh, to people for families of one to three who make less than $60,000 a year or families with four or more members who make collectively less than $84,000 a year. And the uh, services will include um, uh, a free uh, mediator uh, who would uh, conduct a mediation that usually takes somewhere between two and four hours uh, and the provision of independent legal advice to each party before and after the mediation uh, so that they make sure that their uh, all of their legal interests have been considered. Uh, and the, the idea there would be to try and uh, mediate uh, family law disputes, which in some cases can turn out to be pretty intractable and very expensive propositions uh, for people. Yes. Uh, and so I think everyone should be aware of that. You can, uh, if you Google access pro bono, you'd be able to look at the various services they uh, provide, uh, including this new one. So I think that's worth knowing about. Um, and I also thought it was worth mentioning at the same time, uh, in Victoria, we are very fortunate to have a, a program which isn't available in um, uh, anywhere else in the province, which is the Law Center Clinical Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a program which is run by the University of Victoria. And it's run actually out of the courthouse downtown where the land registry used to be. Uh, And the program operates with uh, a team of uh, law students each term who are supervised by staff lawyers uh, and uh, uh, as well have uh, lawyers in the community that uh, participate in the program. Uh And that program provides legal assistance to people who are uh, would be financially eligible for legal aid. So they can't afford to hire a lawyer, but their problem isn't covered by legal aid any longer. And so it will help people with uh, criminal cases where they uh, are not facing a likelihood of going to jail. They would get no legal aid assistance, no matter how poor a person might be. Uh, They would help with civil disputes, uh, family issues. Uh, And so I think that's a really important resource people should be aware of. Uh, They're now back operating um, with protective measures in place in person. 
Uh, so if somebody needed to uh, arrange a, a meeting, I think they're trying to do things remotely where they can, but the students are now physically back at the courthouse. And if somebody's looking for help with that, their website is thelawcenter.ca. And so you could Google that or look that up if you were needing uh, legal help uh, uh, in Victoria and were having a, uh, unable to afford it and uh, couldn't get any uh, assistance from legal aid. People should be aware that there's a uh, an option there that may be able to help. It's a really good program. The Law Center, all one word, dot ca. Fabulous resource. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah. Uh, you and I have discussed the um, phenomenon, and it seems to be increasing, at least from my point of view as, a, as an observer of political discourse, of alleged contemnors and others who defy the orders of courts in the furtherance of environmental object, objectives often um, basically going through the process and simply refusing to obey the courts. And you've educated us in the past with respect to how courts do things. They're not going to drop the hammer on anybody right away, but they will ensure eventually that court orders are followed with increasing levels of sanctions or other penalties and whatnot until they get compliance. I see once again the Trans Mountain pipeline on the agenda for today. What's going on? Yes, indeed. And so this was a uh, appeal by, it's a group of uh, it's five uh, people who were convicted of criminal contempt uh, arising from protest activity related to uh, that pipeline. Uh, and in particular, I think the individuals on this appeal uh, were people who were blocking access to the uh, marine terminal in Vancouver uh, in an effort to try to, I guess, draw attention to their complaints about the uh, pipeline. Mm. Uh, and this group of five people uh, had, was tried for criminal contempt, and they were convicted. Uh, the judge hearing the case concluded that all of the essential elements of criminal contempt had been proven, uh, that they disobeyed the injunction in a public way with knowledge that their disobedience would tend to diminish the authority of the court. And so they were all, uh, five of them convicted, and they were all sentenced to, to various lengths of uh, time in prison. Um, they were uh, periods of time, like 28 days uh, for some of them, um, I think slightly longer for others. Uh, and so they were sentenced to jail. Uh, and uh, this group of five individuals uh, has appealed both their conviction uh, and the sentence that they imposed, uh, that were imposed on them. And the unique elements of the appeal include the fact that uh, all five individuals are Indigenous, uh, and their arguments both on the conviction appeal and the sentence appeal uh, are relate to the fact that they are all uh, Indigenous people. Hmm. Um, and the particular decision made by the Court of Appeal here uh, just recently was a decision about whether they should receive funding to pay for lawyers to help them with their appeal. Um, and one of the unique things about the uh, criminal code as it relates to appeals as opposed to trials is that for a trial, a judge doesn't have any direct authority to order a lawyer appointed to help somebody, even if they're impoverished um, and can't afford a lawyer and really need one. Um, there is some constitutional authority in some circumstances to stay the proceedings and say the Crown can't proceed unless the government provides a lawyer to ensure the trial's fair, but that's pushing on a bit of a rope, and it's got a high burden. Yeah. Whereas in the Court of Appeal, there's a special section at Section 684 uh, that uh, allows a Court of Appeal to appoint uh, a lawyer to assist somebody with their arguments. Um, and 
There's a test for that. Ordinarily, first of all, you'd have to the judge would have to conclude that the person didn't have sufficient means to obtain legal assistance on their own, and then they must conclude that appointing a lawyer would be in the interests of justice. And the interests of justice test would include a number of things, including the points to be argued, complexity of the case, the general importance of it, uh, the nature of the penalties, and the merits of the appeal. Um, and so the judge of the Court of Appeal is tasked with deciding whether to uh, grant this application for these five individuals. Um, and that was made, uh, we've talked, you've talked about uh, the issue of GoFundMe pages. Yes, yes. That's factored into it, because in this particular case, there were two GoFundMe accounts which had raised money. Uh, one had raised $14,750 to support these people while they were in jail, and they had received that money equally. And there was a second account of $22,318 to fund the appeals. And so that played into the judge's analysis of whether they were incapable of retaining counsel. Interesting. Um, but ultimately, the judge found that on the conviction appeal, uh, they should not have counsel uh, appointed uh, for them under this section of the criminal code on an analysis of the merits of the appeal. The judge concluded that the, and the essential argument that they were making there was that the people who were blocking the road uh, were following um, indigenous law uh, and that that authorized them to block the road. But the Court of Appeal judge pointed out that there was really no evidentiary basis for that yeah. other than sort of generally alluding to a concept of, quote, natural law, close quote, and alleging that a direction from indigenous elders said that they should stand up, close quote, in these matters, stand for Mother Earth, close quote, didn't amount to a sufficient basis to make an argument that there was a indigenous law permitting that, even if that is a concept or even if that would play into the contempt analysis. Yeah, it However, comes up over and over again. It was Chief Justice McEcker in B.C. Supreme Court, a trial judge in Delgamook case, pointed out that there's a difference between a body of law and what are just customs and practices that lack the uniformity or the predictability to be considered law. So I know that's a live issue to some degree. Yes, and the Court of Appeal judge pointed out, look, if that's going to be an argument, there needs to be some evidentiary basis for the argument, not just a general allusion to, I'm following natural law. So yeah. What do you say is the law? Where do you say that comes from? What do you say the law is? Uh, now, however, despite the fact that the judge found that that argument didn't have uh, much merit, uh, and uh, the judge did find, however, that the argument about the sentence appeal uh, had more merit uh, because the criminal code has special provisions that require judges to take into account the fact that uh, a person is indigenous when determining whether a jail sentence would be appropriate or not. Mm. Uh, and we have a case from the Supreme Court of Canada, Gladue, talking about that as well. Oh, yeah. And so the Court of Appeal judge uh, uh, has ordered that counsel be appointed not for the conviction appeal, but on the sentence appeal, mm. uh, even though two of these people have served their complete sentence already. Uh, I think another of them got out on uh, bail after serving a part of it. But the judge concluded that's an important uh, topic which should be considered by the Court of Appeal. That is to say whether a trial judge in sentencing an Indigenous person to prison for criminal contempt uh, should be taking into account uh, that person's Indigenous background when making that decision. So we'll uh, more to come. Michael Mulligan, appreciate it. as always the benefit of your knowledge and insight. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Stay safe.